0: Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to session number two of the Mythgard Academy's discussion of the nature of Middle-earth by Tolkien, edited by Carl Hostetter. Really excited uh, to dig back into this last night. We're going to do a little bit less math today. Um, Not no math, however. Um, But uh, anyway, so um, this is uh, is, going to be... Uh, Love and Time Among the Eldar, or Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Elves But Were Afraid to Ask. Um, So I uh, am... Looking forward to our discussion first, though, one thing that I pro- that I want to do to begin that I promised I would do last week. So you remember that last week I was telling you about our fall fundraising campaign, right, which is still going on. And so, first of all, lots of donations have come in this week. Thank you guys so much. Uh, Signum's uh, annual fund is already up uh, to about $58,000 already. Um, so, like, in perspective, we hit about $65,000 the year before last total for like the whole year. So um, we're doing awesome. We're well on our way towards hitting our goal of $100,000 for the annual fund for the year. Uh, So it's very, very exciting. Thank you to everybody who has donated. If you haven't gotten a chance to donate, there's still plenty of time and I ask you to consider doing that. But I said we're going to start off class today doing our drawing because every week during the fundraising campaign, we're going to do a drawing among everybody who has given a donation including those who have monthly donations set up, and the monthly donations that came through during this past week will all be entered as well. Um, And the winner of this drawing is going to receive a ticket, which you can redeem uh, for uh, something cool in all of our uh, tuition-bearing programs. You can choose among either um, an Anytime Audit uh, Registration, you know, for one of our uh, for one of our our credit courses, um, you can get a month of Signum Academy Clubs participation uh, for somebody that you care about. You can get a month uh, a one month path class in our Signum Path uh, program for professional development. Or uh, you could save it up for one of our new space modules in our new space program that's Signum Portals to Adult Continuing Education, um, our new exciting adult education um uh, uh, program that we're going to be launching in just a couple months, and concerning which I will be giving more information on Saturday, October 16th at our all-day webathon at the end of our fundraising campaign. But uh, anyway, so I'm now going to do the drawing. So I have my my, my dice and my little dice tower here uh, as I'm going to roll. See, we had so many um, donations this week. I got to roll percentile dice, right? So that's that's a good sign. Okay. And uh, that's the wrong number. Okay, so I'm going to try again. <laughs> I, said, so I knew this was going to happen. Okay, all right, here we go. Here we go. I got a relevant number now. And uh, let's see, where did my list go? Oh, there's my list. Found it behind my, all my other windows. Okay, all right, and the winner is Kelsey Bartis. Kelsey Bartis uh, is the winner of the drawing for this week. So Kelsey, uh, you should send an email to info at org, uh, and we will get you all set up with your prize. You can let us know what prize you would like and we'll get you all set up. So Kelsey Bartis is the winner. Thanks uh, again to everybody who has donated uh, it has been uh, It's the fundraising campaign is always wonderful just a, a wonderful time to reflect on uh, uh, you know, what you know we've been able to do together as a community, what uh, you guys have been doing and have and are still doing uh, to support Signum and keep Signum going and how we've been growing over the years, it's just been super cool, so uh, thanks everybody for that um, alright so let us jump straight into the text here um, This is the passage we were discussing at the end of last time, uh, the one that kind of, uh, uh, as I said, this is the first passage in the text that blew my mind, and I don't think it's going to be the last, um, about how the Valar are essentially like the soul of the world, The, the kind of analogy that Tolkien establishes between... Uh, you know, that the 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 Fea is to the Hroa as the Valar are to the world. Uh, and, of course, we talked about that, how in the published Silmarillion, we get that line about how, um, you know, the Valar are bound to Arda and its life is theirs, right? I mean, so th- there's some language there which kind of vaguely points in that direction. But I would n- have never have gone so far as this in imagining that kind of uh, intimacy, of relationship there. Um, but... Anyway, I wanted to make sure... We spent a lot of time talking about that before the end of class. Um, but I wanted to uh, just kind of begin by rereading that the last paragraph of this as a transition into uh, what comes... Um, uh, that is to focus on the Eldar part and not just on the Valar part of this uh, of this passage. This, as the Eldar say, was slowly consumed. That is, the Proa, uh, was uh, the body was slowly consumed by the Fea until, instead of dying and being discarded to dissolution, um, that is, like you know the body decaying, like you know the the uh, th- instead of dying and like having their bodies rot in the ground, it became absorbed. The Hroa became absorbed, and eventually became no more than the memory of its habitation of old, which the Fea retained. Thus they have become now usually invisible to human eyes. But this has taken long ages to come about. In the beginning, the Hroar of the elves, being supported and nourished by the great strength of their feia, were were vigorous, resisting hurts, and healing such as they suffered swiftly from within. Their aging was therefore extremely slow by the measure of men, though they were in their earlier days as physical as men, or even more so, more strong, energetic, and swift in body, and taking greater delight in all bodily pleasures and exercises. And that, of course, is going to be important, as we're going to be thinking about bodily pleasures and exercises at several points uh, this evening. Time to have some mature conversations. Um, But um, uh, anyway, so... Uh, that is um, uh, some really fascinating stuff here. The thing I wanted to emphasize as we kind of segue out is, uh, of this passage is what Tolkien is emph- what he's telling us here, what he's insisting upon about the relationship between the spirits and the bodies of the elves, right? In a sense, we have one way to think about it. I'm not sure if this is a useful way to think about it, but one way to think about it is that the uh, relationship between elves and time works differently for their souls and bodies, right? Like the, the souls and the bodies of elves are on two different time frames, or rather, their relationship with time is different. Um, the fea, right, of an elf, um, the spirit, the the soul of an elf, is uh, uh, is very strong. Right. And that is the thing that is like going to endure with Arda. Right. It is it is it is it is connected with Arda and it's going to last for as long as Arda. But their bodies change over time. Their bodies are the thing are subject to the passing of time. So this is one of the things that Tolkien means when he says, as he says in several places, that the elves are not really immortal. Right. Um, it's easy to sort of think about, you know, men are mortal and elves are immortal. Um And it's like a little bit true, or it's true from one perspective, but it's not true from another perspective. And this is one way to think about those two different perspectives, right? On the one hand, you have the Theia, and that is functionally immortal. Now, even there, it's immortal only with a footnote, right? Footnote for as long as Arda endures, right? But given that Arda is not, you know, the, the, the world, the solar system, uh, even the physical universe is not going to last forever, right? That's winding down. Um, So there is going to be an end point to the, and therefore there's going to be an end point uh, to the Fayar of the Eldar as well, right? So even that is not actually immortal, but it's closer to immortal, right? Whereas their bodies are much, much less so. Now, again, locally speaking, it's still going to look, the body of an elf is still going to seem immortal compared to humans, right? Because um, although uh, it has a kind of trajectory, right? The body of an elf has a kind of trajectory, just like a human body has a trajectory. Um, But the human body's trajectory is uh, sort of short embarrassing and depressing (laughs) compared with the trajectory of the elf body right but but again the point is they still do have a trajectory they are subject to time um uh they are subject to time differently than bodies than the fair i i'm a little bit less clear is there a way in which the fair change like their circumstances change their um the way that they interact with the way that they kind of perceive and experience things changes over time as their memories increase. Right, that the one of it's a it's a very um, uh, striking thing. Um, eventually, right, the fea became no more than the memory. Oh, sorry, no, the the roa goes away and becomes no more than the memory of its habitation of old, which the Thea retain. The Thea uh, the Feyre have lots and lots of memories, right? And we'll, 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 we'll come to a little bit more later on in another passage about their memories. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, it's the, it's, the, it's the change in the Froa that is particularly emphasized here. Um, Michael says it's like elves are on geological time, whereas men are on organic time. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Rocks you know, are kind of mortal too, right? Rocks will eventually, you know, wear down and and, and, and get old and pass away, right? Uh, in a sense. Um, but, um, and so elves are kind of like that too. But again, it's not just, the point here is not merely the contrast between elves and men. The point is the, if it's fair to say discrepancy, internally in elves, right? Between their spirits and their bodies. So the, what is that trajectory? The trajectory of the Hroa, of the elves, At the beginning, their Hoa is like humans, right? So notice how he's trying to kind of emphasize both ends, right? On the one hand, their bodies become absorbed into their thear, right? Which is hard to imagine. Like, how exactly does a spirit absorb a body, right? I I mean, um, that's hard to understand. Like, they're not exactly, you know, it's not like something dissolving in water or something like that, right? I mean, there's there doesn't even really seem to be a medium in which those two things are actually meeting um it makes me think of um it makes me think of the medieval uh, uh sort of uh, system of uh, you know the, the medieval conception of uh, of 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 biology and psychology um and you know how they have uh, they they you know they Knew you had a physical body, right? And they believed in the spirit that you had as well. So they believed also that, you know, humans were, you know, made from physical bodies joined with spirits. And they wondered a lot how do the, those two things clearly do interact, right? Uh, your spirit affects your body, your body can affect your spirit. Like those two things clearly are. Doing business with each other, right? but how, right? The medievals are very systematic in their things, very logical and systematic people, uh, generally, not all of them uh, all of the time, but um, uh, but they they really liked to try to puzzle out this kind of thing. So the you know one very prominent theory that they had was that there was this um, uh, like third thing called the spirits. Uh, which was like a a really diffuse thing, which basically comes from the, you know, created, generated by the physical body, but interacted with the spirit. Like it was their way of trying to imagine, like, how is it that the physical body and the spiritual soul, how do they interact with each other? How do they do business? Um, And um, so it's hard to understand exactly. I've never really been able to picture how the, the Thea could absorb the Roa Exactly right. I mean, like it's because again, they're just like of totally different kinds of thing, right? So, um, uh, so that's kind of hard to understand. Um, Yeah, Michael, uh, Michael Dennis, it does kind of sound like matter disappears, right? But it's not just a vanishing right? Like, one day you wake up and, like, your body, it's gone! Like, case of the missing corpse! Um, no, it's not exactly like that, right? So, this whole paragraph, in a sense, is him trying to explain about how that works, but at the same time that he's trying... So, he's trying to explain, ultimately, the fading of the elves. And this, again, we we talked about this a little bit at the very end of last time, um, that it's one of these ideas which informed the very, very, very beginning of Tolkien's mythological conception, right? The idea that the, the elves had faded from from the world they weren't gone right um there were still memories of them there's still a a, a a a presence of the elves but you don't just like run into elves anymore in the woods like you know Arthurian knights used to do occasionally usually to their discomfort um but um anyway yeah so I uh, that's that's that concept of the fading of the elves um uh, and by the way, for those of you who haven't read the book of lost tales in the beginning, he actually was envisioning the diminishing of the elves. Now you may remember like Aladriel talking about diminishing, right? That, that concept of diminishing, um, is, um, is still around later on when folks like Eladriel talk about diminishing. Um, it's metaphorical, right? Um, uh, in the Book of Lost Tales, it's pretty clear, I think, um, that that diminishing was literal. Because you may know that the fairy traditions that Tolkien was dealing with, not the medieval fairy traditions that he loved most, but the more proximate fairy traditions of the people around him, right? Uh, the, the Victorian English fairy traditions, um, They were very fond of the idea of the, you know, the tiny little, you know, cowslip fairies, basically. Right. Um, And um, that's uh, so he now we know. Right. We know that um, uh, Tolkien disliked that. And came to dislike it more and more and more <laughs> over the course of his life but it's an uh, it's an unquestionable and to some extent uncomfortable fact that um when you read his early stuff that he was writing in the teens you know when he, when he was like in his early twenties um it's pretty clear that he was at the very least sort of temporizing with it, right? He wasn't saying, like, oh, yes, like, all these stories of tiny little, you know, fairies that, like, disappear into flowers and stuff. Like, that's just what I love. I want to write that kind of story. He didn't want to write that kind of story, usually. Though he did sometimes, especially in some of his early poetry. Um, But um, he did compromise with it, right? What he did suggest is that the elves used to be greater, but they've diminished, right? So those elves who are still around in our world um, or at least were recently still around in our world, like within the last 50 years, might be, in fact, diminished, might be actually small. Uh, but anyway, okay. Um, so exactly, Merry Goblin Feet is a prime example uh, of that kind of fairy poem that he wrote. Also, the original Errantry poem, that that dude, right? The Merry Messenger uh, uh, of the Errantry poem um, is um, uh, definitely a a, you know, I mean, the dude, like, marries a butterfly and fights dragonflies, you know, slays dragonflies and stuff. Like, he's totally diminutive diminutive fairy. Um, but um, anyway, um, yeah, that's interesting, Stephen. So uh, uh, Stephen is saying he had to create an intermediary between the old and new fairies, just as as the medievals created an intermediary between soul and body. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, well, sort of exactly. But anyway, yeah, kind of. Um, so anyway, Notice he how he's kind of hitting the other end of that here as well, right? He's saying, okay, so they are going to fade. They are going to become invisible. They don't have they're not dead, right? They've not they're not they're not ghosts. It, we're not talking about the spirit, the lingering spirit. The world is not haunted by the lingering spirits of dead elves. Well, okay. The world might be haunted by the lingering spirits of some dead elves but that was a bad choice and they're kind of creepy and we're not talking about that right now. Um, he talked about this, like how necromancy works. Do not attempt. Um, last, we looked at that when we did our Morgoth's ring discussion last year. Um, but, um, anyway, um, but so he's emphasizing, this is, we're not talking about dead elves, right? Um, their bodies have not been discarded to dissolution. They've become absorbed into the fea itself. Um, they, it has become no more than the memory of its habitation of old, which the fea retains. So the spirit of the elves, this creative artistic spirit of the elves, can holds this memory. And it's an elvish memory. We'll talk more about elvish memory uh, as we go through, I am sure. Um, and so it's there's a reality to that, right? It's not just like, I remember having a body. That was kind of cool. Right. It's, It's not just that, right? There's a, there's, it's still around the body. The Roa of the elves is still around. It's just living in their memories. Um, and to humanize they're invisible notice, invisible to humanize. I suspect that means that probably elves can still see each other perfectly fine or not perfectly fine. I don't know. Um, but uh but again notice then how he goes back and says, In the beginning, the bodies of the elves, their Hroar, um, were vigorous, resist they they were they were just like us, except more, right? Vigorous, resisting hurts and healing such as they suffered swiftly from within. Um uh yeah, yeah. Um Right, and so, Lynn, when Arda ends, yeah, well, that's the big question, right? And, of course, Lin, you may remember when we were discussing the athrobeth of Finrod and Andreth in Morgoth's Ring, that's the question that Finrod has, right? Uh, when he tells her, like, yeah, um, you think you're the only one who's facing death? We're facing it, too. Admittedly, not for a while, right? Going to be some time, um, you know, when the world ends. But if you think that humans have it rough... Um, you know, facing this you know, darkness right, this un, this blank right, that you have to um, you have uh, to quote the Numenoreans from the Akalabeth, a hope without assurance right, and you just have to sort of step blindly into the dark when you die do- well, you have no choice, you're thrust blindly into the dark when you die, right so are elves, well, so elves shall be eventually um, uh, so yeah, but that's where he, where, but he's not uh, he's not uh, Um, we're not talking about that here. Um, so the aging of the body, so this is, this is all sort of a setup, right? For him discussing the aging of the body. So what is, let's, let's take a closer look at that trajectory uh, of the body, like the time, the temporal trajectory of the body, how does it work? Um, and, uh, so it's there, this is why their aging is extremely slow by the measure of men though they were in their early days as physical as men. So just because an elf, we're going to be talking about thousands of years um, in like the segments of an elf's life cycle, don't think that this means that they don't have bodies that are every bit as physical uh, as you, right? If you cut them, they, you know, if you cut them, do they not bleed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, taking greater delight in all bodily pleasures and exercises. Okay, so... Um, now he says, if we disregard the actual time measured in sun years of middle Earth but use years merely as units of measurement in the growth from birth to maturity proper to each kind, it will be observed that the elves closely resembled men in this process okay so he's just, he's establishing a parallel right again the the early stages of that of that bodily trajectory of elves is is." generally parallel to the bodily trajectory of mortals right different frame different scale but it's parallel they reached maturity of the body at about the age of 20 20 quote years right not mortal years mind Um, uh, at about the age of 20 they reached maturity and remained in full physical vigor till about the age of 60. After that, the Fea and its interests began to dominate them. At the age of about 100, one of the Quendi had reached a stage similar to that of a mortal of full age and wisdom. The normal period, therefore, for marriage and the begetting and bearing of children and their nurture, which were among the greatest delights of the Quendi and Arda, was between about the ages of 20 and 60. Okay. Um, notice the... Um, kind of consequences of this idea. um, Okay. I was about to say this in a kind of an awkward way. I think I'll go ahead and say it in the awkward way and then try to qualify it. Um, The awkward way I want to say is like, what's the point? Why is he telling us this? Right? Why is he spelling it out in this way? Why is he drawing this parallel with mankind? Um, And it seems that one of the primary reasons, one of the primary things he's trying to explain is that is how uh, that elves have life cycles. That's that wouldn't necessarily be obvious. Right. I mean, if if there were, you know, you meet an elf. Right. And you meet him again in in 10 years and you're older and he's not, right? And you meet him again in a hundred years and you're dead and he's not, right? And you're, you know, your aunt, your your distant descendant 15 generations later meets him and he still looks exactly the same, right? So as far, it looks like elves are just static, right? They grow up. I mean, obviously they got to go from, you know, from, uh, uh, you know, from fetus to adult at some rate or other, right? So, okay. Like, Obviously, that's got to happen somehow or other. Um, and, we're, and he's going to talk about, of course, how long that takes. But but the important thing is, once they achieve adulthood, however long that takes, is it just like the same for them? Because, I mean, it looks like they don't change to mortals, right? Over thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, potentially, of years. So, uh, so how does it work? Um, you know, do they... Um, uh, it, Is there a question of like fertility or something? I mean, like it's, you know, a human can live for 100 years, but most of the time um, that is accepting, like Abraham and Sarah um, and a couple others, um, you don't like still get to voluntarily have babies for the whole time if you live 100 years. Right. Um, There's um, there's a certain amount of um, uh, practical biological matters to consider here. Right. Um, And so the thing that he's telling us here um, is that um, (laughs) the thing that he's telling us here is that elves do have something like that kind of pattern. Now, he's not yet explaining it exactly, like biologically or something. So I don't know. Sorry, I was laughing a second ago at Sean's comment. Sean Strasberg said, one wonders, is the 20 to 60 for childbearing similar for elf men and elf women? Or is there a difference, you know, like as among humans, right? A human male can uh, can father a child, you know, until very late, uh, whereas uh, uh, you know, whereas a human woman will go through menopause and, and not be able to bear any longer. Um, and so he's wondering if uh, elf women experience menopause, <laughs> and then he was wondering, is it called elfopause? Uh, <laughs> if you like elvesopause, I, I doubt it. I I I I don't think that. Uh, uh, our professor, the philologist, would approve of that word. Um, but, um, but anyway, but yeah, Michael Curtis, that's a really good way to think about it, that, um, that elves are not vampires, right? Vampires are frozen, right? That, that's kind of the idea. Like, they're, they're kind of stuck, you know, and, and that sense of this sort of staticness of the life of the vampire, that they just get kind of frozen. I mean, that is part of at least many of the vampire legends, right? Elves are not like that. Elves do grow and develop and have these different stages. So let's look at what he tells us about this. Um, And Sean, I mean, again, I I, I agree with you. Um, I I agree with you that uh, it is... It does seem parallel to the physiological, biological cycle of human development, right? Um, But I don't think that he is giving us in fact it's quite clear that the explanation of this that he gives is not in fact a biological one right um they remained in full physical vigor till about the age of 60 what happens at that point at the age of 60 elf years right do their does their physical vigor begin to decline right are they over the the elf hill at that point and their better days are behind them and it, no, not exactly. Because, again, remember, the problem is not that the body goes into this kind of decay, right? Um, the problem is that the fea begins to dominate. And that's exactly what he describes. After that, after the age of 60, the fea and its interests began to dominate them. The fea and its interests. Um, so the problem is not that their bodies can't handle it anymore. Necessarily. The point is their fea's busy doing other things, right? Um once the Elvish Fea really gets going, right? Once once it gets into gear, uh, once it leaves that, you know, uh that period of youth behind it, if we can classify generally, um and clumsily, admittedly, the whole time from birth to this age. 60, uh, which I keep making air quotes around the ages here, because again, remember, he's not saying 60 years of the sun by any means, um, as he'll express more clearly later on. Um, But in making this parallel in these 20, you know, these 20 uh, Yanni, 20 elf years, um, he is suggesting, again, it's not that they enter physical, physical decline, it's that they enter spiritual acceleration, Right. And the way in which they, um, the way in which they accelerate it. So, Stephen, it's they don't have an elvish midlife crisis. Uh, they have an elvish midlife. Oh, it's not midlife, early life, right? It's like the beginning of their real lives. Um, what is the most essential thing to the spirit of an elf, right? What are elves really about, first and foremost? They're makers, right they're about the the making of things and the studying of things and the loving of things right it's, they, they have um, um, many interests right um, and that begins to really take over so that they cease to be interest as interested in physical things. Um, the time of the children right the, their child their marriage and childbearing time generally falls in that 20 to 60 age range right cuz after that their faith is it's doing other things right they got other things to do um, at the age of about 100 now so no, notice what he goes on to emphasize again he he kind of doubles down on the fact that they're not just in physical decline at, at about the age of 100 and again it's still in those same you know years right which means um, so yes chris i do believe uh that we're talking about um um that we're talking about the 144 equivalent years here uh still um so so yes age 100 we're talking about in years of the sun we're talking about 14,000 at about the age of 14,000 or so right but again remember that the um uh the he's establishing the parallel right that's the whole point of this paragraph establishing you know trying to help us understand the parallel but the, the parallel it goes really closely at first, right that that arc from birth to 20 to 60 the two of them are tracking together and then whoop they diverge right because t- about the age of 60 um, humans physically don't in fact and I'm sorry I don't I don't like spoilers um, don't. In fact, continue uh, to become more and more strong and vigorous, of body, of body after the age of sixty. Right? Um, what does he emphasize about the elves? At about the age of a hundred, given the parallels that he's established, what are we? How are we expecting that sentence to end? Right? At the age of about a hundred. At the age of about of a hundred, you know, stick a fork in them right there. Like they've, they've. I mean. We're imagining a kind of, you know, parabolic arc, right? Um, of uh, of 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 life, right? You know, growth, and and then like up to the you know the prime of their lives, and then you know decline. Uh, sorry, I'm going off camera here. You know, decline down into their into their twilight years, right? I mean, that's kind of, it. Sounds like that's what, that's what I expected, anyway. Given the parallel that he had been establishing, but not so, right? When they reach. That parallel time, that 14,400 year mark, that 100 uh, years, um, where humans are very lucky uh, still to be, you know, uh, breathing at that point, the Quendi have reached a stage similar to that of a mortal of full age and wisdom. We could perhaps uh, take votes. As to what age exactly he's referring to there, <laughs> I'm not sure, and I'm not keen to guess. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, yeah. Okay. So um, uh, right. So the parallels stop after age sixty is what I'm gathering. Right. No longer is it like they they. Reach a stage similar to that of a mortal of full age and wisdom. But, you know, when I suppose the human is no longer thinking about childbearing generally. Um, all right. Chad votes for 50. I could buy 50. I could buy. Oh, f- huh. I could buy 50 especially as I'm approaching 50. So uh, full age and wisdom, <laughs> sign, sign me up. Well, that's a little depressing. I'm to, hoping to uh, achieve greater wisdom. Uh, that I, I, I hope, I hope I, I've not actually achieved as close to a percentage of my max wisdom as all that. Um, but, um, okay, now, Jen, you asked a very sensible question, but I don't think that we can answer that yet. Um, and that is, uh, can you give us an example with an elf we might know? Um, he says, I'm trying to picture it's Kirden or Gorfindel or anybody like that after their Fea takes over. Jen, this is part of the problem, um we're still early days yet, right? One of the things that Tolkien is doing is working this stuff out. Um, it's one of the big questions, right? Um, how old is Cierdan? Is not a question to which we know the answer and can bring that in to help us understand this better. That is indeed one of the very questions Tolkien himself is trying to figure out, right? Given what we know about Círdan the shipwright in the stories from the Silmarillion, you know, the stories that he gets worked into in the Silmarillion and from what we know of him in The Lord of the Rings, um, what, therefore, must the age of Arda be, right, if that is true? Right. That's exactly the kind of thing that, uh, Tolkien is kind of trying to, uh, work out. And Michael Dennis, I agree. Gore is a bad data point. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. He's a bad data point in, in almost every way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and let's, um, and remember he's, Tolkien is, um, one of the things to recall here, and this is one of the things that makes this book so much fun, I think, um, it's not just that we have to uh, kind of guard against <clears throat> spoilers from later on. We have to remember that Tolkien is himself figuring this out. Um, so we can't just jump ahead and say, like, all right, let's apply all this stuff and then we'll we'll figure it out. We have to go along with him while he's figuring it out um, uh, and be very grateful for the work that uh Carl Hostetter did uh in laying this out for us so that we can go along with it in that way. Um because again, Tolkien is Tolkien doesn't know the answer and is slowly and strategically revealing it to us. Tolkien is figuring out the answers <laughs> to these questions, right? Um so that's why yeah, again that's what's so much fun uh about um about this whole thing, which I think is uh, is just great. Um See. so Christopher is wondering if you're a fea in Mandos waiting to reincarnate, how does this affect the timer? Now so Chris this is one of the reasons why it's important to recall um, that the timer is totally different right the, the kind of clock that we're discussing that's the ho- this is the Roa clock, right It's the body clock that we're talking about here. It's, it's, not, it's not the fea right Now the fea begins to dominate them right uh, That is the fea the balance between Fea and Roa begins to tip in favor of the fea after the age of 60, right? Until the Theia is really driving the bus by the time they get to a hundred plus. Right. Um, but a dead elf whose spirit, whose fea is in the halls of Mandos, right? Someone whose body is killed, right? Chopped up into bits or, you know, burned or whatever it is, right? However it is that their froa was sufficiently discommoded, uh, to, uh, uh, Compel their fae to uh, um, give it up as a bad job, right? And merely retain the memory of it uh, and go off to the halls of Mandos. And Tolkien is, was pretty explicit about this uh, in uh, Morgoth's Ring when he says that they were very vigorous and could heal themselves. He means from things that would certainly be mortal wounds uh, to humans. Um, it takes quite elves. The old elves took a lot of killing. Um, they really did. Uh, so like you, you've got to have, uh, um, you know, the, their body has to be totaled, like absolutely totaled in order for them not to be able to come back from that. Right. Um, or they have to choose to let it go one or the other. And sometimes there are reasons why they, why they, why they let it go. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, right. Exactly. Steven, they, 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 elves, um, the category of mostly dead uh, for the Eldar back in the old days was uh, it was a broad, broad category uh, at that point Um, yeah so, okay so we're going to focus on the period of their lives when the parallel to human maturation works Right? That period of time between 20 and 60, which is when they beget, when they marry, beget, and bear, and nurture. Right? Um, So that's what he's gonna focus on. So, all right, okay. The Quendi differed, however, from men in several important aspects, if we speak only of them in the early ages of their life in Arda. One, their faear never reached maturity in the sense that they ceased to be able to grow by further increase of knowledge and wisdom, but they did reach a stage when memory of thought and labor, and of the events of history, general, and to each one in particular, began to be a burden, or at least began more and more to occupy their minds and emotions. This development, however, which marks the true aging of the elves, did not concern the elder days, and first became evident during the second age, increasing rapidly during the third age, when the dominion of men was finally achieved okay so let's pause there for a second um, here we do learn something now about the time frame not exactly about the time frame but about the uh, trajectory of the feA right we, we've been looking at the trajectory of the body over time right and how time affects the Roa of the elves here's this is how time affects the feA of the elves they they're, they're Impacted differently and more slowly, right? Um, but how it works is by this uh, accretion of memory. Uh, the memory of the elves, and again, we I am sure we're going to talk more about the, uh, the quality of the memory of the elves, right? It's not just a purely kind of um, quantitative thing, right? Um, that, uh, you know, like, you know, We have memories of, like, a certain number of decades, right, uh, of experience. But the elves, I mean, remember, we're talking about, uh, you know, a hundred-year-old elf or parallel to a 100-year-old, was 14,000 years old, right? 14,400 uh, uh, 14, years old. So that's a lot of memories, right? I mean, goodness, that's uh, uh, many, many times as many memories as I have. So, who, yeah, uh, you know, uh, bet your brain would be pretty full of memories. But but it, but it's not, it, yes, yes, but but more than that as well. It is not only that the quantitative accumulation of memories um, continues in this uh long-term and linear fashion. Um, but the quality of those memories is very different uh, to uh, for the elves than it is for men. They experience memories differently. Memory becomes like a world in which they walk. Remember Legolas talking about elf memories and elf dreams uh, in The Lord of the Rings? Uh, in that, um, when he and Gimli are having that conversation, it's really primarily um, um It's really primarily Gimli talking about what he's heard and Legolas being a little bit coy about it, actually. But anyway, um, that's um, uh, uh, one passage where we hear a little bit um, about this. Um, But anyway, as I say, we'll probably get more later. And he gives us an illustration of some of the things, some of the memory, the kinds of memory that are going to be accumulating in their thea, right? thought and labor, the events of history, general, and each one particular. So there's the stuff that they have experienced that is uh, the history of the elf in question, their own life history and experiences. But there's only one of the four things he emphasizes here, right? There's also the general events of history, that is all that they've heard and learned about the world and everything over their whole time, right? But then also there's thought and labor, right? The work of their hands and the work of their minds and these things they retain in their memories, right? They don't lose them. It's, again, it's it's clearly different, um, you know, for like an elf to make something and then the thing itself passes away, right? Um, or is lost. Um, but, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I remember I remember that cake I made that was that was a good cake right um, it's not just that right because um, I think that elves can in some spiritual sense have their cake and eat it too um, but um, anyway uh, so so yeah so all of these things are in their memory and this it it, it accumulates right it accumulates until it begins to be a burden or at least, more and more to occupy their minds and emotions. This is what aging... And, and he says, this, this is what they talk about. Well, when, when we're talking about aging, we're talking about elves getting old, that, that's what really makes the difference. The changes in the froa, which are kind of quicker and more visible, that's not what matters, really, to the elves. That's not actually aging, per se, right? Um... Yeah, this is um, the aging is what happens with their Erya. This accumulation of memory, the burden of accumulated memory. Um, but he's like, keep in mind, irrelevant in the elder days, right? This didn't really start piling up for the elves until the second age. They didn't even really think about. It. They didn't even know this, right? They, um, if you if you had, you know, interviewed like Finway or somebody like that. Now Finway. Was around for a long time, right? I mean, he was the first elf to be killed, but uh, at least in Arda. um, But um, he was, uh, but still he was around for a long time. Um, And if you'd asked him, or if you'd interviewed Finway prior, presumably to his death um, about his experience and say like, so your memories, you know, would you say, uh, uh, you know, on a scale of one to five, how burdensome would you say your memories are? He wouldn't, he wouldn't have thought there was a problem with it. Right, he he didn't even notice. Um, they didn't know because there weren't any old elves then, right? They were all young, um, in elf terms. So now we don't know the number yet. We're we're it's one of the things we're working out. But um, um. But anyway, off they uh, uh, as time went on, they began to notice this increasing rapidly during the Third Age when the dominion of men was finally achieved. And so now notice how, by the end, this comes to help contextualize a major theme through the Lord of the Rings. Why... This is a... a, a question which Sam seems to be asking implicitly in the Green Dragon in Chapter 2, right, of the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, he's... He knows the elves are sailing away. Right, they're sailing, sailing, sailing away and leaving us. Um, uh, he chants, you know, uh, um, to Ted Sandyman, who doesn't care. Um, Sam is sad about uh, the departure of the elves. Why? Why? Why, do they, why? Why are they leaving? Why do they have to go? What is it that, like, the dominion of men, like? okay, like, how about not? Let's not do it then, right? Like, um, you know, if, uh, if the elves stopped, just just stopped leaving, right? I mean, is that then maybe the men wouldn't have to... I mean, it, that is, you see the kind of questions that I'm asking, right? Um, there is a sense in The Lord of the Rings, an unexplained sense, in which something ontologically is happening, right? Treebeard talks about it in that line that movie Galadriel stole from book Treebeard um, about uh, change, feeling it in the water, right, and all that stuff. That um, uh, that line that movie Galadriel gets in her voiceover at the very beginning of the first film, um, which is actually something that Treebeard says, um, that is a um, um, that is a a hint that there's something going on here, right? There's something changing. The implication, I always thought, the implication in The Lord of the Rings is that there's something about Middle-earth that's changing. Not about the elves, but about Middle-earth itself, right? Um, and that sense that there's something in Middle-earth that's changing uh, seems to be uh, highly endorsed are supported by several passages in the Silmarillion and by several even more explicit passages in some of his earlier writings, um, uh, like the Book of Lost Tales and some of the earlier, uh, um, like the uh, Quentin Nildur Inwa stuff from the, uh, what's it called? The uh, Shaping of Middle Earth, volume four. Um, That Time begins to work differently in Middle Earth. That uh, the days of this, you know, when the sun rises, things change and things change, like the pace of development changes. Stuff, you know, the air of Middle Earth affects the elves differently than the air of Valinor. something in the air, the quality of the air. Um, but um, anyway, it seems so, it seems like, yeah, there's something in Middle Earth that's changing over the course of the Third Age and the dominion of men is inevitable. It's because I've kind of what is happening to Middle-earth. But here, we learn that this seems to be something that um, is intrinsic to the elves as well. It doesn't mean that it's untrue about things changing in Middle-earth. It just means it's not the only part of the story, right? Things are changing in the elves as well. Now, okay, let's keep going. Individuals were more variable. So, two. Individuals were more variable even than among men. This may be ascribed to the variability of the Elvish feyar. In native force and talents, greater than any variation seen among men, and the more powerful influence which these thear exerted upon their bodies. The ages, therefore, defined above, twenty, sixty, one hundred, are only general and approximate. After maturity, their minds and wills had far more control than is the case with men over the events of the body, and over the direction and serial ordering of the uses of the body's powers. Okay, Um, he addresses pretty quickly here um, the tendency, which I think he very rightly believes that we are going to have uh, to generalize, right? To think that elves are all much of a muchness, right? And and he says, no, 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 no. They're more variable even than among men. Um, uh, Greater than any variation, seen among men. uh, The variation in native force and talents. Um, So you have a much wider just difference in native force and talents um, among the elves than you do among the men. So there will be just like wild differences. Um yeah good kurtz uh says i've I've wondered for years why there were no elf children anywhere at the end of the third age. yeah, Kurtz, again, all I would say is um sounds like Tolkien had been wondering that too, right This is how he operates, right We see this again and again. Um, he is not here explaining something that he had in mind all along, right He is discovering like, it's that's how he rolls right um uh so yeah, I suspect that he also had been saying to himself, huh, why well, there aren't any elf children. Um, he gave an explanation why there are no intings around, right? Why aren't there any elflings around? Well, he's beginning, perhaps, to discover the answer uh, to that. Um, but, um, yeah, okay. Um, now, Cecilia, so there are two questions... I want to try to answer, but I'm going to uh, advance warning, spoiler. I'm not going to succeed in answering either one of them. Sean was asking, when elves are reincarnated, do they get any relief from the memory burden? Do they get a a kind of reset, or does it just continue? We'll talk about, we'll see where he goes with the reincarnation thing. What he said in Morgoth's Ring, he said multiple things, but where he seemed to kind of settle out based on how Christopher... um, presented those texts to us um, was that they do it's continuous so do they get relief do they get a reset no no eventually after they grow out of their childhood they do retain memories of their earlier life right so they don't lose their memories from before if they go to so Gorfindle Gorfindle still has his memories from Gondolin is what that would mean right so i think the answer is no not a reset but i but but then again the reason that we can't i can't answer it exactly sean are two reasons one we don't know exactly the status of tolkien's thinking about elvish reincarnation well i think we'll get more of that later in the book um but secondly i don't know what the effect of their being in mandos is right. Um, in Mandos, they receive healing and instruction and, and good, even if hard, things. Um, but, um, uh, but I don't know. So, it, does that ease the burden, in some sense? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'm not really sure what kind of impact that has. And, uh, death, I mean, you know, uh, the, um, the, um, when you total your Hoa and then you uh, get a new one, right? What is it, what kind of a change, you know, on this kind of stuff, not sure. Now, Cecilia's question that I can't answer um, is, uh, okay, what good is living as a collection of, uh, you know, memories, even if they can experience them as real? Athea has no hands and so can't make new things. Yeah, Um, right, so what is the good? Well, here's the one thing I'd say, Cecilia. Your question, I think, is privileging the Hroa in a way which sounds like a 100 plus, uh, you know, yen elf, <laughs> yen old elf um, would not do. Remember how the fair begins to dominate the Hroa, until eventually it's going to absorb the Hroa. So there's a sense, I think, uh, Cecilia, in which you're kind of taking for granted that um, really making something, like being a painter and actually painting a real picture with, like, paint with your hands and, you know, brushes and stuff, um, whatever it is you use if you're an elf, um, that's real art, right? Whereas... The mere memory of it, or the mere thought about it, is in a sense less real, right? Not actualized, um, and I don't think that that's true necessarily of the Eldar. Um, I don't think that an elf. I don't think that a you know a twenty thousand year of the sun old elf would think about it that way necessarily. Um, um, is the physical outward sensory manifestation of, um, um, uh, of um, you know, art or, you know, the labor of the Fea? Is that the true expression? Is that the perfect expression? Is that the best expression? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know that it is, necessarily. Um, yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, John Beryl says a tadpole doesn't ask of the frog what is the good of having no tail. Um, it it might it might well be, John, as you suggest that that would be how the elf would think of it. Um, that is when it no longer has a a normal hroa, right? When the hroa has been absorbed, um, that it's like oh, you know, now I don't have my I can't can't paint anymore. Right. I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm in the post art stage of my life because I, I have no hands any longer, any more than, you know, the frog is like, I'm in the post tail stage of my life. So life doesn't have meaning anymore. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe so. Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Michael Curtis, I'm kind of, that's the way that I'm tempted uh, to, uh, to think about it. Um, the thought of something always possesses a perfection that the physical cannot live up to. Perhaps this is how the elves prefer it. Michael, you know what I cannot but think of in this moment um, is the encounter with the tree and Leaf by Niggle. Different thing. He's not talking about the Eldar and their art or anything there, but the concept that we encounter in that moment in Leaf by Niggle, when Niggle, after his time in the workhouse, encounters the tree um, in that place, which will come to be called Niggle's Parish. Um, you, if you remember the story, you will remember that he not only encounters <clears throat> his the subject of his art made real, but still his art. Right. It's not just that he discovers the real tree that he was actually picturing in his or that he like um, had glimpsed from a distance that's true but it's more than that it's also the tree that he created and Tolkien emphasizes the narrator in the story emphasizes that he sees the leaves um not only as he envisioned them but like as he tried to capture them like they are they are more perfect than not only than he had ever executed um but they even were ones leaves that he would have come to think of you know had he lived longer um that moment in *Leaf by Niggle*, uh, Michael kind of informs my idea of what the post-Hroa artistic scene might be like uh, for the Eldar. Um, I um, I don't know. Is it possible that a, that the loss of a physical subcreative power would be a sorrow for a while? I think so, but I I probably I mean is there loss? yeah the elves certainly do experience loss but what i can't help but think michael is that it there's no way it could be the same uh if you've got a human artist who can no longer do the art anymore right like a human singer who loses his voice or um um you know anything like that right um it's not that's that, you know, the 20,000 year of the sun old elf is not going to be in that position, right? I do not think that they would consider themselves parallel to that at all, really. Um, is there a loss? Is there a change? Yeah. And it, perhaps, perhaps it might be, um, there might be sorrow. It's, it's, I, I can't rule it out, um, but I am not 100% convinced um, that it's um, that it's really that it's really likely. Um, okay. Um, note in passing the point that he makes about the stronger connection. That's not his words. Let me use his words: the more powerful influence. Which the faar of the elves exert upon their bodies. However, it may be that the body and spirit do business with each other in the beings of the Rohirrim in Tolkien's world. The faar um, is in charge. The is in charge of the Hroa, um, much much more than among men. Um, this means a couple things. One, it means that things about the spirit are going to be manifested more in the body than is normal among uh, men. This is why he says um, that they have greater variation in native force and talents than any variation seen among men. Um, you're going to see, because the fear is like shaping the body. Right. Controlling the body, um, uh, influence, exerting more powerful influence over the body, um, you're going to you're you're, you're going to see a more kind of direct reflection there. But also over the direction and serial ordering of the uses of the body's powers, many things that in humans are only um, unconscious processes automatic processes, are under the conscious influence of the Theia among elves. And the number one example that we're going to see of this is going to be conception. Um, elves get pregnant on purpose. There's no, um, you know, the uh, there's, there are no shotgun marriages among the elves, right? Um, there's no such thing... Uh, the elves are very ingenious, but one thing they would never invent is a pregnancy test. They know, right? And they know not only because they're, they are, are so closely in touch with their hoar that they are perfectly well aware of what's happening to their bodies. They, they, they're not going to have a child uh, uh, you know, conceived within their person and not know it, right? Um, but more than that, they will know it because they chose it right they decided that that was going to happen when it was going to happen um yeah okay um so uh more more let's let's keep going okay um i couldn't it's i couldn't forbear of course to talk about his um uh long footnote about love uh this is um Kind of a—it's a pause from the discussion of uh, elvish development, bodily development, and, and uh, emotional development. Um, but um, let's—but um, we need to understand these concepts because these are important. In this matter, the elven tongues make distinctions. To speak of Quenya, love, which men might call friendship. But for the greater strength and warmth and permanency with which it was felt by the by the Quendi, was represented by mel, that is, by the the the, the word part mel. This was primarily a motion or inclination of the fea, and therefore could occur between persons of the same sex or different sexes. It included no sexual or procreative desire, though naturally in incarnates the difference of sex altered the emotion. Since sex is held by the Eldar to belong also to the Fea, and not solely to the Hroa, and is therefore not wholly included in procreation. Such persons were often called Melatorni, love brothers, and Melathildi, Melathildi, love sisters. Okay, so let's parse that a bit. First of all, we've encountered this in the published Silmarillion, the idea that um That difference of temper uh, they had from their beginning, he says, of the Valar when he's talking about why, if they don't have bodies, like if they don't have physical bodies that are natural to them, why does the Silmarillion continuously talk about boy Valar and, you know, boy Valar and girl Valar? Um, Why does he describe them as male and female? Um, And you may remember that the... um, The the narrator of the Silmarillion says that that difference of temper that is the difference of temper that makes the difference of sex the difference between male and female they the Valar themselves had from their beginning so it's something intrinsic to them Um, and they look like males and females among uh, the incarnates because that's how they because they are expressing their Internal natures, right? So he says this is true of the Eldar as well. Um, the difference of temper that makes the difference between male and female is part of the fea. It's not an accident of body. Um, that Tolkien is very clear about that. So we need to we need to understand that is the framework that he's working with here. Um, the The fea of elves again, parallel to, not exactly the same, but parallel to the Valar um, the the Pha'ar of the elves is either male or female to begin with um, joined to a Hroa, which is male or female in conjunction, um, and remember that closeness of link between the two of them, um, there the Hroa is going to be bodying forth the nature, uh, of the Pha'ar in that way, um yeah okay, um, so but anyway, all of this is in the context of talking about friendship, mel, right? Which of course you will recognize from the word melon, right? Uh, on the gates of Moria, um, uh, so mel is friendship. The difference between, um, you know, the, the the that which is described by the word mel, or the you know the 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 um, the morpheme mel. Um, and the English word friendship is greater strength and warmth and permanency um, with which it's felt by the Quindy. Okay. The desire for marriage and bodily union was represented by yare Desire for marriage and bodily union. That's very polite, right? Here we're talking about sexual desire, right? Um, uh, they have a totally different word for that kind of love than for the friendship love. Um, but this, never in the uncorrupted, occurred without love Mel. So they, they always go together. Um, if you have an elf who desires marriage and bodily union, right? If you have a, a an elf who's experiencing sexual lust for another elf without friendship, who does not also love Mel, that, that's, um, that's, ba- that's, that's bad. That's, that, that tells you something is um, off, morally off uh, in that elf. And of course, if uh, you might be thinking of Myglin, um, then so am I. <laughs> um, remember, there's something crooked in my um, he's corrupted in some way. And is it just is, you know, is, is that exactly what Tolkien is thinking of here? Um, I don't know, but I think, uh, it's, uh, involved anyway. Okay. So it's, it doesn't occur without love, Mel, nor without the desire for children. Uh, so yes, do elves experience sexual desire? Do they experience sexual, you know, lust? Yes. Um, but not without friendship in the uncorrupted, not without friendship, and not without the desire for children. So the two things are together, like the desire to to have children, the desire to have a family is yeah um, the desire merely to have sex, merely to experience the pleasure of sexual intercourse with no other strings attached. D- uh, Tolkien says that is not something that is not an experience that the elves have uncorrupted. How many corrupted elves are there and how many of them experience that? We don't really know exactly, but, um, um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, it's not a thing, uh, that they, that they do. Okay. This element that is the year element, the sexual desire element was therefore seldom used except to describe occasions of its dominance in the process of courting and marriage. Um, so, uh, you know, when um, when you're experiencing year, that's when you know it's time for marriage, right? That's like, that's how courtship is defined, right? The feelings of lovers desiring marriage and of husband and wife, that is, so th- this carries on, by the way, after marriage, <laughs> apparently, right, between the husband and the wife, were usually described by Mel, mostly, right? That is, so, you know, if, if you talked about, like, oh, look how in love those two are, right? Or, like, this husband and wife, like, they, they still love each other. Um, normally, you would, you would use the word Mel. Mel is the important word, right? Yer is, like, very specific, um, very localized. It's sexual desire. It's the desire to have children. But it's not what dominates you, right? Not if you're an elf, apparently, right? Um, the foundation of the relationship between husband and wife is Mel, um, not Yer. <clears throat> okay. This love remained, of course, permanent after the satisfaction of Yer in the time of the children. Yer is the sexual desire, which is the desire for children, and is therefore a desire that is satisfied. Mel, Mel is never over, right? Mel is permanent, remember, he said. Um, so, you know, you don't grow out of friendship, but eventually the desire for children is satisfied, um, but was strengthened by this satisfaction. So th- their mill for each other, their love for each other in the mill sense, is strengthened by the satisfaction of year, um, by the having children, right? And the memory of it to a normally unbreakable bond. So year contributes to the to the mill <clears throat> to the bond between the husband and wife. Um, uh, it, uh, it 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 strengthens the male between them when it is satisfied, and the memory of it strengthens it to an unbreakable bond. <clears throat> a feeling, not here to speak of loss. So he's not saying like divorce is illegal among elves. He's saying elves would never want to get a divorce because their male, <clears throat> their, their friendship to, for each other is so strong. Um, George, I would... Resist. Uh, George is thinking about Greek words for love, which is extremely tempting, and I'm tempted too. Um, but I'm not going to go there. Um, is Yer like Eros? Yes, but it's not identical to Eros. Um, so I, I, my impulse here is to say that the Greek words for love <clears throat> um, are likely to lead you astray. Um, Let's focus on what he tells us and not try to, because I, let me say the same thing another way, George. I don't think that he is, he has those Greek terms in mind and is using like Elvish vocabulary to get at it, right? Um, So I don't think it's safe to draw an equivalency there at all. Um, Are there some parallels? Yep, there are definitely some parallels, um, but it's not, um, uh, it's definitely, I think it's not the same thing. Okay, speaking of Greek words for love, he's going to go on and use one here, um, but not about Mel or about Yer. Two other stems were also concerned with feelings that we should often call love. indil and endure. That's N-D-I-L and N-D-U-R. These generally did not concern individuals or persons and were unconnected with sex in either Fea or Hroa. Uh, and and now he's not talking about the act of sex. He's talking about gender there, right? Unconnected with the the either the bodily or spiritual sex of it. It it, it, it it's irrelevant, right? Whether you're a boy or a girl is irrelevant to uh, the question of um, uh, indil and endure. These other two love word parts. Indil is best compared with English file p-h-i-l-e, in anglophile, bibliophile, etc., or especially with philo as in philosophy or philology. It expressed a feeling of special concern with, care for, or interest in things such as metals, or lower creatures such as birds or trees, or processes of thought and inquiry such as history, or arts as poetry, or in groups of persons as elves or dwarves, so, indil would lead you to study something, right? To pursue an interest, right? Um, but again, it's it's a kind of love. It's about the relationship you have with these things. So, if you... Um, are a lover of trees, and you love to see trees, and learn more about trees, and discover trees, and uh, and study them, and how they grow, and how they live, and all these things. You would be. You are a lover of trees, right? Indil would describe your relationship uh, with trees. Thus, Elendil, Elendil, lover of the Eldar, or Elendil, which sounds almost completely identical, but is not. Um, one is lover of the Eldar, the other is lover of the stars. Of course, the Eldar are the people of the stars, so whether you love the people of the stars, or you just love, you just cut out the middleman and love the stars directly, right? In either case, apparently your, light, your name might be Elendil. Um, uh, Arendil, lover of the sea, Valandil, lover of the Valar. It may be called love, because while its mainspring was a concern with things other than the self for their own sakes... It included a personal satisfaction in that the inclination was part of the lover's inherent character and study or service of the things loved were necessary to his or her fulfillment. So it's one of the things I think he's getting to at here is like it might seem like, um, you know, you, you might love trees, but do trees love you back? Can you really call it love? You might have an interest in them, right? But it's only love metaphorically. I mean, you're not entering into a consensual relationship with trees, right? Um, So it's not reciprocated, uh, this kind of love, surely, right? If you uh, love metallurgy, for instance, um, or poetry, poetry is not actually going to love you back, right? Um, But he says it's like love because these things are necessary to the fulfillment of... um, uh, to the fulfillment of th- they're, they're a natural expression of the lover's inherent character, and they are necessary to the fulfillment of their own you know their own joy, their own personal satisfaction, right? Um, so in that sense, yeah, the trees might love you back because studying them and seeing them and discovering them makes you happy, right? And so, yeah. The joy that you receive from your love of medals or history or poetry um, does love you back because it makes you happy. So that's indil. Endure seems originally to have referred to devotions and interests of a less personal kind, to fidelity and devotion in service produced by circumstances rather than inherent character. Thus, an ornendil was one who loved trees. And who, in addition, no doubt, to studying to understand them, took an especial delight in them. But an orendur was a treekeeper, a forester, a woodsman, a man concerned with trees, as we might say, professionally. Okay, so that's the difference. Um, if you do something for your job, right, and you, um, uh, you're devoted to it, Right. I mean, it's you've devoted your whole life to this career, right, to the study of this thing. Um, You're a professional. You're really good at this thing. But you don't really love it for yourself. It's like the difference between your job and your hobby. Right. Those things that you do just because for personal satisfaction. Right. Um, It's the difference between a lover of trees. Right. Somebody who just wants to spend time with trees, wants to learn more about trees and somebody whose job is. They're a, they're a woodsman, a forester, right? Someone whose job is to take care of trees and they know lots about trees. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Kurtz, so you might, uh, if you're an Ornindil, you might say, perhaps teach trees to speak, right? Um, that's, uh, yeah, d- d- that's absolutely what an Ornindil might do, that an Ornendur uh, might not do. But since, he goes on to say, certainly among the free Eldar, Indur was normally accompanied by indil or personal interest, and even by mel, for the Eldar held that this emotion can rightly be felt by incarnates for other than persons, since they are akin to all things in Arda, through their Hroar and through the interest of their feyar, each in its own Hroa, and so in all substances of Arda." The distinction between Indil and Indur, especially in later Quenya names, as used by elves or men, became obscured. Um, So there's a good reason why these two words get blurred together. They get blurred together because among the elves, almost nobody does the one without the other, right? Um, You know, this is one of the things, by the way, I remember in the Silmarillion Film Project, we were asking, uh, there are many questions that we have come to ask in the Silmarillion film uh, project that I never asked before, uh, including who sweeps the floors. You know, uh, among the elves, right? Surely somebody sweeps floors. Um, you know, Menegroth, right? I mean, the floors don't clean themselves, right? So somebody's got to be the floor sweeper. So how does it work? Is there an elf like whose job it is to sweep the like an elf who's sweeping the floors of? Uh, you know, of menagroth every day for 10,000 years, right? Are there like, who does the menial work and what's it like, right? And so what we decided was that there must be a floor sweepers. Um, one, thi- you know, we so we we kind of were saying, well, well, maybe they kind of like take turns, you know, doing the menial chores. Um, so we were kind of imagining like one possibility, which saw like, you know, on a particular random day, you might go into Menegroth and find like Thingol sweeping the floors or something, or Luthien or something, because they, you know, they they all they all do it. Um, and we decided, no, no, that's that's not right. That's not right. Um, what would probably happen among the elves is that there would be someone who loves sweeping the floors right who uh as a and we were kind of even imagining that like uh imagine how an elf would sweep the floor um there would probably not only like efficiency to it but but grace and beauty it would be like this dance right the dance of the floor sweeper and probably i'm going to bet you that like the patterns that are left on the floor after the elf sweeper is done, uh, right, you know, would, I would be, you know, uh, uh, gorgeous and amazing. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, but anyway, that was kind of our theory when we came to that. And this paragraph makes me think that Tolkien might have agreed with that there. Um, any elf who had a professional interest, any elf who became a, a professional at something... Right, who experienced endure. So, in our in our example, right, um, the dude sweeping the floor would endure a n d u r, right, um, uh, sweeping. That's they would um, uh, they would be one who uh, uh, who did that all the time. It was really good. It was professional, right? But among the free Eldar, endure is normally accompanied by indil and even mel. Now. Did the our theoretical floor sweeper elf feel Mel friendship with the floors or indeed even with the dust bunnies? I doubt it. Um, but um uh, but uh but anyway, yeah, I am um, uh, I think that this uh, uh, blurring of the lines between Indil and endure. Uh, suggests that kind of uh, that kind of culture uh, among among the elves. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, maybe he would feel Mel with the. Pro- I don't know if you can feel Mel with the process. Mel involves and that when he says that uh, even by Mel, right, like a lover of trees could even experience Mel friendship for trees, right? And there you see. Now has to be reciprocal, I think, if I'm understanding it properly. Indil and Dylan and Dork are one way, right? You can love poetry, and poetry doesn't love you back. Metaphorically, it does, right? It's like love in the sense that it can, like, complete you and fulfill you, right? Uh, and bring you great personal satisfaction. Um, but, but it doesn't actually—it's it's, not—poetry isn't your friend, right? Um, uh, but things can be. Trees— can be your friend, because they're your fellow creatures. Um, they're akin, the elves consider themselves akin to all things in Arda, right? I mean, they're, they've are they got a roa, they're made of Arda stuff, right? Just like the tree is. So, yeah, it's okay. to feel, But can you feel it for a process? Like the process of sweeping? I'm not really sure. Um, uh, I think it has to go with a noun, and I suspect if... well... yeah. Yeah. Um... Uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, It could apply to the floor, theoretically, or to the stone of the floor. Yeah, possibly, possibly. Okay, anyway, all right. Um, Back to the text. Now I'm uh, leaping all the way ahead to chapter four here. Um, Let's just read. It may also be noted that in each Elvish life, there was normally only one period of begetting or bearing children, whenever begun, and that the length of this period was variable, as were the number of children produced. It might occupy from twelve to about sixty years, occasionally more. The children numbered usually two, three, or four. One was exceptional, and could be due to different causes. For instance, the separation of the spouses, as in the case of Idril daughter and sole child of Turgon of Gondolin, whose wife Anaire of the Vanyar would not go with the Noldor into exile, but remained with Indis, also of the Vanyar, widow of Finwë. In other cases, the spouses, one or both, might not desire more than one child. This was rare, and in the histories of the elder days occurred only when some child of exceedingly great qualities was born— which, as the Eldar say, demanded far more of the vigor and life of the parents than a normal child. The most eminent case was that of Mirio, mother of the most gifted of all the Noldor, Feanor. Okay. Um, uh, all right. Several things that I want to hit on here. Of course, we all knew Feanor was coming by the end of this paragraph, right? Um, as soon as he said one was exceptional... Right. We all saw Fanor coming a mile away. Um, this is in the context of describing the length of the childbearing years um, of the elves. How many children do they tend to have? Two, three, or four, usually. Oh, very rarely one, very rarely more than four. Um, but note what's also happening. Note what's also happening. Um, on the one hand, this is rooted in narrative right? There's something that lurks behind. Why is he saying two, three, or four? Why has he decided that two, three, or four should be the proper number? Again, it's thinking about this, not from the elves' perspective, but from Tolkien's perspective. How does the cause and effect work? It's like when I was talking about Círdan before. The question is not, he knew all along exactly what Círdan's backstory was, and now he's setting us up to understand it, and now he's going to disclose it to us that's not the situation. The situation is he had no idea, and he's trying to dis- he's trying to figure it out. He's trying to discover it, right? To find out what the answer is. And I think we can clearly see that happening in this paragraph, right? It's one of the dominant things happening in this paragraph is he's now citing in a few cases explicitly and in a few others implicitly, stories that are already known. The children numbered usually two, three, or four. That's a sentence which has a wealth of illusion behind it, right? We think back to all of the L families that we know. How do we know that's true? Well, read the Silmarillion, you can see it's true, right? So he starts with this as a fact, right? Clearly, obviously, two, three, or four is the most common number of children among the Eldar. Um, What's he doing now? Figuring out why that's true. So on one level, the stories that he's already invented Seem to be serving as the foundation for these stories again. What he's doing is discovering the truth that lies behind the stories that he's already told. To some extent, that's what he's describing, right? Um, <clears throat> but, but, um, and, and and of course, we see that with uh, before I go on to my butt, um, uh, we see that with 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 the Fanor example right? Um, as to why one was exceptional, he gives a couple examples. He gives, he, he refers to three different, um, instances, right? Um, well, okay. Sorry. Two instances. He mentions Indus, um, but not in the context of having only one spouse, or sorry. (laughs) Oh, slip of the tongue there. Having only one spouse, uh, there's me thinking about um, uh Freudian slip. No, having only one child, right? Okay. Um, uh, so he gives two examples. Theonor, again, the one we all saw coming. And then Turgon of Gondolin. Idril. He only had one child, Idril. Now, I'm going to ask you a trick question. Why does Turgon only have one child? Why does Turgon only have one child? Bear in mind, this is a trick question. Exactly, Bruce. Um, if you'd ask this, um, before we cover up the text, right? Um... And uh, if I'd ask you, I don't know. Uh, I guess no, I can't reach all the way over there. My picture cuts off. I was gonna, I was gonna cover up the text on the on the on the, on the image. But anyway, before you read this paragraph, if I would asked you that question, you might have said, uh, "Because his wife died in the crossing of the of the Helcaraxa." That's what it says in the published Silmarillion, that Turgan's wife died in the crossing of the Helcaraxa. So that's why. They only have the one child, because she was already born. Idril was. Um, but her, her mom didn't make it across the ice. Many of the Noldor died in the crossing of the grinding ice, uh, and uh, Turgon's wife was one of them. Except that's not what he says here. That's why it's a trick question, right? Right. As in the case of Idril, daughter and soul-child of Turgon of Gondolin, whose wife Anaire of the Vanyar would not go with the Noldor into exile, but remained with Indus Widow of Finwë. Wait, does that sound familiar? Uh, 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 let us re-enter published Silmarillion world. We've heard that story, though. It's not a new story. Who is that true of? who was in you know was bonded to one of the vanyar who didn't come with that's somebody's story in the published silmarillion but isn't targon <laughs> several guests no one has guessed the right f and l yet you got it Belladonna Wolfsbane in Twitch. Finrod. Finrod is the answer. <laughs> I think we've had every other. We had Fingon, Feanor, Fingolfin. No, Finrod. Finrod Felagund. Um, um. Uh. He. Uh. He was in love with one of the. Um. Uh. One of the right. Uh, uh. One of the Vanyar, and she didn't come with him. Right. That's mentioned explicitly in the published Silmarillion. Um. In other words, we see in this paragraph two different things happening, right? On the one hand, to some extent, the stories that he has already told are serving as the foundation. Again, he's trying to explain that. Given the stories, right? Given what happened in the stories, what's behind it? How can we explain it? How can we better understand this world in which those stories happened, right? Um... And there seems to be a lot of what's happening. But it's not exclusively what's happening. At the same time, in these moments, new stories are emerging. Or at least the old stories are changing, right? Oh, wait. Turgon's wife has a name, Anire of the Vanyar. And so now Turgon gets Finrod's story. So Turgan's Turgon's wife doesn't die anymore in the crossing of the Helcaraxia. That's new. That's new. Okay. So again, what I'm trying to illustrate here, and this is something I want to keep our our eyes on, because one of my interests, maybe you don't share it, but one of my interests in reading The Nature of Middle-Earth is trying to understand, again, to me, one of the things that I am most interested to discover in this volume is what was going on in Tolkien's mind during the 20 years in which he did not finish the Silmarillion. Right. It's not quite as simple as why didn't you finish it, Tolkien? Why didn't you get there? Right. I'm not saying like, you know, gosh, Tolkien, why were you so lazy? And uh, you know, why did you fail? My point is what was he doing? What was that whole process like? What was the, what was the sub creative experience of Tolkien you know, from like 1951 to 1973, right? What was that like? What was he doing then? Um, And this, so I think the two things that we can see going on uh, uh, in this passage are super important, are very reviewing, right? He's both explaining and he's also developing. The stories um, are the source of the lore, but the Lord does not leave the stories alone either. But of course, we have another famous singleton, and here you go, right? Here you go. Um, uh, I, again, I don't know if you had the same reaction to this footnote that I did. Um, but reading this, I was like, oh, man, I have answered this question so many times. I wish that I had had this paragraph, you know, 10 years ago. Um, uh, people ask me this question all the time. Another case was that of Luthien, daughter of Elwë and Meliana, eluthingol and Melian. Though this case was also unique in that Meliana was not an elf, but of the race of the Valar, a Maya. Footnote. That is, a divine spirit, coeval with the great Valar, but of less power and authority than the Valar whom they served. Melian assumed, as the Valar and Maiar could, the raiment of the children, the incarnates, out of love for them. So they can get a body. Right. But notice one of the things we're going to be getting at here, which is super interesting, right, is how exact. Because I've tried to explain this so many times. And the problem is not that I and necessarily I'm not saying I've like failed, though, doubtless, I have many times failed to explain it well. The point is I would explain it. And then as I'm explaining it, I'm like, do I even really understand this? That is a, a thing that I've often said is the relationship between the spirit and the body in a Valar who has taken on a body, right, a, a Valar who has taken on a body, is not the same as the relationship between the body and spirit of an incarnate, right? And this has often come up when trying to explain what the heck the wizards are. Because the Astari are incarnate. Okay, fine. Um, so I, I've often said that, right? The relationship is different. But fortunately, not that many people have pressed me on that point to say how exactly is that relationship different? Because I didn't understand it very well myself. So we're getting at that here, and I'm delighted. Okay, all right. So Melian has taken on the raiment of the children. She's she's made a body for herself, right? Out of love for the children. Great. Only one of the greatest of the Eldar, in their early vigor, could have supported a union of that sort, unique in all known tales. Um, by the way, here, Tolkien is picking up... Um, A um, a prominent mythic idea. There are many stories, of course, of unions, sexual unions, between mortals and the gods. This rarely ends well for the mortal in question. And I don't just mean because the gods in question are often doing uh, scurrilous and disreputable things, uh, like Zeus so often does, for instance, in Greek mythology. Um, I mean, even if it's... um, all quite charming, consensual, and, uh, romantic, it still rarely ends well for the mortal in question, um, and often either destroys them or comes, uh, near to it. Um, anyway, so, um, yeah, um, Right. Like Psyche. Bricktails. Yeah, exactly. Or like, um, uh, what's his name? Anchises. Um, uh, Aeneas's dad, who uh, um, who fell in love with, um, uh, uh, who, well, fell in love with, yes, uh, but who, who uh, slept with Venus. Um, okay. Oh, by the way, no, Bruce, I'm pretty sure I am not wrong. Um, uh, Finrod. Yeah, no, Finrod. I, I'm right about that. Right? I mean, it's possible that I have, I'm like, because I've not achieved yet the pinnacle of wisdom, according to Chad. Uh, But, um, but I'm pretty sure, (laughs) I'm pretty sure uh, it's Finrod Feligund I'm talking about here. Um, There's a reference to it in the story of Baron and Luthien um, when he, um, like talking about why he has no heir. It's when, when he abdicates, um, uh, uh, you know, in Nargothrond, he's got no heir uh, and is never going to have children. Um, because he's been separated uh, from the woman that he loved. I'm almost positive. I'm remembering the correct uh, the correct elf there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, good. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> good. Uh, I'm glad I'm not going crazy. Or uh, just forgetting, which is not quite the same. And anyway, all right, let's carry on this momentous footnote. Um, okay. Only one of the greatest of the Eldar in early vigor could have supported a union of that sort marrying one of the Maiar, like, that's not a thing that could have... Forget it. For a human, forget it, right? N- couldn't happen. Even one of the elves would have been... Who knows what would have happened to them, right? Like, it It's. It would have, uh, you know, it would have completely short-circuited. But he's one of the great among them in anyway He was also really early on, um, still in his early vigor. Um, but Melian, having in woman form born a child after the manner of the incarnate desired to do this no more. By the birth of Luthien, she became enmeshed in incarnation, unable to lay it aside, while husband and child remained in Arda alive, and her powers of mind, especially foresight, became clouded by the body through which it must now always work. It must now always work. To have borne more children would have still further, would still further have chained her and trammeled her. In the event, her daughter became mortal and eventually died, and her husband was slain, and she then cast off her raiment and left mid earth Whoa. that blow your mind? Blew my mind. Um, by the birth of Luthian, she became enmeshed in incarnation, unable to lay it, her body, aside. So, the quality of her relationship with her body altered when she conceived Luthien, when she bore a child. Notice the parallel that he's established? This is so cool. Right? Uh, Remember, we started off with the slide that showed that the, the Valar, right, entering into Arda, when they descended into Arda, when they entered into Arda um, f- because of their love for it, right? Did they have Indil? I think they had Indil for uh, Arda, right? Um, not Mel, because they, they, it wasn't like their buddy, like it wasn't uh, their peer in any sense. Um, anyway, sorry. Getting distracted, so the Valar come in, and remember, so they are like they become like the 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 Fea of, and 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 Arda itself becomes like their Hroa, right? That's the parallel that he establishes. It's like the parallel between body and soul. Melian recapitulates that, right? Just as the Valar, so love Arda, that they enter into it and bind themselves to it like a body, like the incarn like incarnation. It's it is an incarnation. Sort of. Or at least it's like an incarnation, right? As they themselves become incarnate in Arda itself, right? So, in smaller scale, that same pattern is repeated. Melian loves Elwe, right? Loves Thingol. And her love for him binds her to her body. She becomes incarnate, essentially. Whatever it is, that difference in that relationship between body and spirit... That differentiates a Maya, a, you know, a spiritual being who's merely putting on the raiment to the children, right? Who's merely just kind of throw, throwing a body out there so that they can walk about and talk with folks, right? Um, whatever is the difference between the, that relationship and the relationship that, that uh, the incarnates have, she crossed over. She incarnates her own body. Her love binds her just as the valor are bound to the world right? And it limits her. Notice all those negative words. Enmeshed, clouded, chained, trammeled. Um, that's pretty remarkable. Um, Arthur says, "So you could, <clears throat> so you could say that Thingol ensnared her." Well, let me one up you there, Arthur, with one step uh, increased discomfort. Where did that happen? Where were Thingol and Melian when Melian became chained, trammeled, and enmeshed with incarnation, Nan Elmoth? Yeah, the same place where. Aeol does a certain amount of trammeling and enmeshing of... uh, um, uh, I haven't had enough sleep. Her name. You know, Torgon's sister. Arathel. Phew. Remembered it. Yes, Ardell. Exactly. Um, Yes. um, Yes. No, I'm not saying it's the same. I'm not saying... I just wanted to say... There's, um, uh, it's a, it's a twisting of it, right? It's a, it's and it's 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 obviously not the same. Um, we can do a lot of contrasts there, um, uh, but um, um, but it's not that there, are, there, there 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 is not no point of contact there either. So, uh, Arthur, is he, um, um, you know, has Thingol enmeshed her? Is he entrapped her? No, no. Um, it is an expression of her love. It is an expression of her choice, right? Um, and yet, she is enmeshed. She's trammeled. She's chained. Um, and it would be even more so if she had more children. So she chose to just have the one child, not because, you know, uh, she gave birth to Luthien and was like, I'm going to, you know, stop while I'm ahead. Um, but uh, because, good, yeah, Chris uh, Christopher says it's more like Luthien being enmeshed in Baron's doom. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, something like that. Something like that. Um, yeah. It is kind of like the good version, bad version, Chad. Um, I once listened to uh, Kate Neville give a wonderful paper um, comparing Baron and Luthien and um, Arithel and Aeol. Um, showing how those they're really like opposite sides of the same coin. I mean, there's there's uh, um, some fascinating parallels and anti parallels between the two of them. Um, you've got like this like twisted dark side of a very similar story um, with Arthel and Ao. And I thought it was a, it was a very convincing paper. Um, I've been kind of you know thinking about that ever since. And so, uh, Kate, I think it's interesting to add Melian and Thingle through. You know, this footnote suggests kind of adding them as a sort of a third point uh, to that discussion. Right. To be thinking about um, the different ways in which Tolkien is uh, kind of considering how this sort of works. Right. Um, Yeah. Michael, I agree. One of the things that it would do is it helps us to understand uh, better the nature of Aeol's corruption. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. I'm not at all suggesting they're all basically the same, right? I'm not. Tr- I'm not trying to uh, besmirch uh, Thingol and Melian, uh, nor Baron and Luthien. Um, uh, but, um, but again, the the uh, the connections are are really. Um, I just I, it just it brings lots of things out here. Um, so, okay. This is why this also explains a question, right? Um, did you ever wonder? Cause I did. Um, I was always dissatisfied by the end of Melian's story. Um. Thing old dies, so what does Melian do? Right, okay. Dwarf army attacking. You know what would be really handy right about now, like um a girdle, right, protecting the forest and its people. From any invading army, right? Um, like that would be super handy right now. Um, but as soon as Thingol is dead and the dwarf army is preparing to attack, she's like, "Okay, bye. Um, I'm gonna take off and leave everybody." And 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 like, there's gonna be this like horrible, disastrous slaughter of the people of Doriath. Like, did anybody, Has anyone else ever kind of um, wondered this? Right? Felt a little dissatisfied about like what McMillian like come on like what are you dropping the ball for here um I I, you know I'm just saying I kind of um and I'm not saying I was always I mean it's it's true um um uh first fish that grief knows no rationale I hear you I hear you um you know that um um I and i i always kind of accepted that on one level right like you know she's she she's upset she's bereaved like i'm not going to judge or anything it's not like i was okay i was judging a little bit but um but anyway it just it felt um a little unsatisfying um this puts it in a very different light and once again going back to what i was talking about on the last slide um and as i've been saying before did Tolkien... Is this is, the, is, is this exactly what was in Tolkien's head the whole time and he's now finally explaining it to us? No. I don't think so. Um, I think it's going the other way around. Um, I think Tolkien, too, very likely never really understood why Millian left. He knew that she did, right? But is he now understanding why that happened? Has he discovered here why million left? It's what it sounds like to me, honestly. Um, this is exactly the way that uh, Tolkien thinks and creates. If there's one thing that we've learned about Tolkien's creative process in our many, many year-long journey uh, through the history of Middle-earth together, it's that that is totally how he thinks. Um, okay... Um, peeking ahead no <laughs> let's stop a million it's uh we're we're uh, coming to the end of our time here um i could try to squeeze in another slide but i'm going to be good uh besides i have a lot of work to do tonight still so i should stop um I should be good uh we will pick up with this uh with childbearing uh next time and pregnancy in particular um and uh, uh so for those of you uh, uh uh mothers out there who might have felt like your pregnancy lasted for a hundred years um uh, may <laughs> uh be interested to read more about the pregnancies that actually lasted uh, for a hundred years um, but anyway so we will, we will go on and discuss that next time how far to read for next time well we're not going too fast are we um, let's read through chapter 8 so I'm going to keep asking you to read a few chapters ahead of where we are uh, just in case I hit a smooth patch Right? Uh, I don't want to be caught at unawares uh, so let's read through chapter 8 Uh, for next time, uh, and we'll see. uh, We'll see how far we get uh, next time. But um, anyway... Thank you very much uh, for uh, uh, for joining me tonight. This was a really fun discussion. Can't wait to join you guys again next week um, as we discuss. And don't forget, uh, we're going to be doing uh, another drawing next week for everyone who's made a donation or everyone whose donation comes across uh, during this week from starting from the beginning of class uh, tonight all the way through the beginning of class next time. Uh, so. Thank you guys again for your generosity during our fundraising campaign. Thank you for remembering Mythgard and Signum during this time. Uh, And I will say good night, everybody. See you guys next week.